Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America. Happy Monday. So glad you can join us in the start of a new week. Lots of news going on. If you need to get a news fix, you know what to do. Go to justthenews.com. We've got you covered there. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, The world is aflame, uh, particularly uh, scratching its head on what to do about the prolonged now Russia-Ukraine conflict. Does Joe Biden have this right? A lot of people have their doubts. We've got somebody at the start of the show top of the show today that really can get to the bottom of it. Uh, George Beebe, he's currently the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Before that, he was one of the CIA's premier experts on Russia, Russian intelligence and analysis. He's joining us to make sense of that war and all the other things going on. China aggression, uh, while really sage voice in the intelligence and security world. He's first up today, George Beebe. And then we're going to go to Houston and to a good friend of the Second Amendment. Joining us uh, from Houston is a, uh, he's been a reserve officer for a long time there. He's also a training director for the Concealed Coalition. He is Austin Davis, and you're going to love what he has to say about getting prepared to protect yourself. What happened at the July 4th massacre last week in the Chicago suburbs? He's got us covered on all those things. One of the great voices of the Second Amendment, Austin Davis, right after this commercial break. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down, and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% 
money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick House Nutrition and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code Just News. That's promo code Just News at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code Just News for 15% off. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. I know a lot of us are thinking about how long may this war go on in uh, Eastern Europe between uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, all of the challenges that an aggressive Vladimir Putin has created for the world. Well, we have one of the perfect guests to help us walk through that very thorny and tricky issue. He's a, uh, a longtime intelligence analyst and former head of the CIA's Russia Analysis Desk, currently the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Risk responsible statecraft. He is George Beebe. George, great to have you back on the show. Great. Thank you, John. You have done a lot of writing, a lot of thinking. In fact, I think your 2019 book was probably one of the most impressive to warn of what was coming, the Russia trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. A lot of warning signs that the tensions were building. Uh, we're three or four months into the war now. Your thoughts, is this going to be a long haul war or is there some diplomatic settlement that could burble out of it? Well, right now, uh, we're not heading toward a diplomatic settlement, although I think we should be. Uh, but uh, all indications are that the Russians are girding for a very long-term uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, and the United States uh, and the West are as well. And uh, so long as the West is willing to support the Ukrainians in this effort, I think the, the Ukrainians are certainly willing to continue fighting for their survival in all of this. So we're on a trajectory either toward a very long war or some sort of escalation into a direct U.S.-Russian confrontation uh, before we uh, we end all this. So um, right now, uh, it's, it's looking fairly bleak. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be any sign of, of either side relenting. Uh, President Zelensky from Ukraine asking for a lot more weaponry, uh, clearly preparing and settling in for a long haul. Um, I've seen some very smart articles that you were quoted in, uh, and one of the uh, potential dangers here is that Joe Biden seems to have a bigger strategy than just address this war. And it's to use this moment, this uh, this confrontation, 
to weaken Russia. A lot of people have heartburn about that. Your thoughts about the idea that the long-term U.S. objective here is to weaken Russia, which could maybe drag a lot more people into this conflict. Yeah, that, that of course, is a temptation that we kind of slid into relatively early in this war when it looked like the Ukrainians were, were winning and the Russians were underperforming relative to what everyone thought would happen. And, and we started, uh, you know, being more susceptible to what you might call mission creep. You right. know, not only could we defend Ukraine against uh, uh, capture by the Russians, but we might be able to eliminate our Russia problem altogether. You know, it's so weak in the Russian economy, so weak in its military, um, that it couldn't really be a significant player in the world anymore. Um, the problem with that is really twofold. Um, one is that it might succeed, <laughs> and that sounds sort of paradoxical, but right. uh, you know, Russia can cause problems through being too strong and aggressive, and we're seeing to some degree the fruits of what that kind of thing can look like in Ukraine, but it can also cause problems by weakness, and this is something that we had to wrestle with back in the early uh, post-Soviet period in the 90s. When you know Russia looked like it was spinning apart, you know, it had the uh, the insurrection inside Russia in Chechnya, uh, lack of governance. A lot of Russian right. constituent components were ungovernable. We worried about nuclear weapons, uh, you know, spinning out of control, um, and you know, various technologies leaving Russia and going into the hands of rogue states and terrorists and that sort of thing. So Russia gets too weak and we have a set of other problems that we've got to deal with. But then the other problem is what you might call a, a Versailles Treaty problem. You know, after World War One, right. the victors in that war imposed a very punitive peace on Germany. They tried to cripple its economy. They tried to ensure that its defense industry couldn't rebuild the German military into something that would threaten its neighbors anymore. And they, they succeeded in doing that, but they created, of course, the seeds of Hitlerism uh, and revanchism and revenge and resentment. Uh, and that's the pathway another thing to the Second World War. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not worried too much about that problem. We think, yeah, we can cripple the Russians, and you know, um, there's not much of a price to be paid for that. But history should tell us we need we should be very cautious about this approach. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, in, in times of war and major foreign policy crisis, it, there's a lot of people that want to just boil these down to black and white. But foreign policy is a very sensitive chess game, and even little moves can have a very big. Uh, impact on the global stage. And I think a lot of us forget that we're we're consumed with our daily jobs and uh, uh, getting the kids to uh, school or whatever it is. And But this is a very sensitive grid and moving things around can have unintended consequences. Do you see a scenario where uh, Ukraine gets carved up kind of like uh, North and South Korea did in the 50s? Is that a danger here, one of the possible scenarios? Yeah, I think it certainly is. Um, and in fact, I think it's probably the most likely scenario uh, based on the trends we're seeing right now. Um, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians uh, seem particularly eager to compromise under current circumstances and to, to find some sort of diplomatic settlement. The United States is not pushing anybody to go in that direction. Uh, and 
we're on a trajectory toward a partitioned Ukraine in some way. Uh, the only question is, where are the lines going to be drawn? But uh, it doesn't look at, at uh, the current time like the Ukrainians are going to be able to push the Russian military out of Ukraine altogether. It doesn't look like the Russians can capture all of Ukraine. So we're likely to have, have some sort of de facto line of control separating Ukraine from Russian-controlled areas. Um, and there won't be any formal agreement over that. There won't be a diplomatic settlement uh, where uh, an actual peace accord is uh, signed, but, but rather we end up with sort of a, a de facto uh, line, uh, a ceasefire, but that is never codified. Uh, and it's very volatile and becomes essentially an open wound in Europe. Yeah, that's a real danger. Now, back in April, um, you wrote um, an article suggesting one possibility is a Ukrainian treaty of neutrality, that there could be some sort of pact where Kiev gets security guarantees from the UN Security Council. Uh, Russia gets to kind of keep for the time being the gains it's made in the Crimea and Donbas republics. Uh, and uh, Ukraine addresses the one thing that seems to trigger uh, Vladimir Putin, which is uh, uh, moving towards NATO, will remain neutral, would be the offer from Ukraine. Is that still plausible, or has too much history uh, unfolded since then in the war? Well, it's not impossible, although it's becoming increasingly less likely. Um, This was something that... uh, the Ukrainians actually put on the negotiating table in Istanbul not that long after this war broke out in February. They proposed strategic neutrality with that neutrality guaranteed by the UN Security Council. Um, and the Russians indicated that that was something they were willing to contemplate. Now, um, a lot of blood has been spilled since that time, and the positions of the sides have hardened considerably. Um, Right now, I'm not sure that the Ukrainians are as willing to contemplate that as they were a few months ago. Uh, But I would say this, unless the United States uh, plays an active role in attempting to steer things toward that kind of outcome, there's no way we're going to wind up there. We're a critical player in all this. The Russians believe that uh, the war is really between uh, the United States Uh, acting through its proxy in Ukraine and Russia, not between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, So they're not going to agree to anything unless the United States is willing to uh, come to some sort of understanding here uh, on this issue. Um, Right now, I'm not seeing that we have much interest in doing that. As long as that's the case, this is not going to happen. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, uh, but uh, because I don't think most Americans realize that that's how Russia sees this, right? Which is that uh, this is really a proxy war and Ukraine is just our proxy in the region. And that drives so much of the Russian decision-making. Um, there's a big decision this week, the State Department said, uh, even though there's a G20 meeting in Bali of foreign ministers, uh, that uh, Tony Blinken wouldn't uh, spend time and, and have a conversation with Lavrov. I, I, about a decade ago, I had the chance to interview President George H.W. Bush uh, in his retirement before he passed away. And I asked him what the most important lesson he, he had in all the various roles he had, CIA director, vice president, president, what was the most important lesson he learned about foreign policy? He said, no matter how hot things get, 
make sure the phone line is always open to your enemies. And I found that I just remember those words so vividly. Uh, is this a mistake for Blinken not to at least ha- engage in a conversation with Lavrov? Well, yeah, I think it is. Uh, we do need to be talking to the Russians and uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and, and Secretary of State Blinken have not spoken since uh, prior to this invasion. It's mind-boggling. Uh, and, you know, we, we do need to have channels of communication open. Um, that's the only way you can really find a way out of this situation. And it's the best way of avoiding escalation into a crisis. Yeah, no, it is. You got to keep the communications open, even no matter how frustrated you are. Just knowing where both sides are is such an important uh part of the of the dance and when there's not communication going on people start guessing and i think that can lead to some pretty significant uh instability um going back to your 2019 book which i think had very prescient warnings and uh when you look at the shadow war that we've been conducting with russia uh certainly uh from the mid uh, 2014 period on time frame for sure um do we still risk a nuclear catastrophe? Are you just as concerned today as you were when you wrote the book uh, back in 2019? Well, I'm more concerned yeah. <laughs> today than I was when I wrote the book. The book was an effort to alert people to the dangers and provide an opportunity to avert them. Unfortunately, we've you know walked right into the dangers and I think actually doubled down on some of the things that have caused problems. You know, fundamentally, uh, both the United States and Russia have approached this situation by believing that each escalation uh, on their part will cause the other side to back down. It will cause the other side to sober up and say, you know, this isn't worth it. You know, we're going to say uncle. Um, and, you know, the, the Russians, of course, got themselves into the situation by uh, basically putting a gun to NATO's head and saying, you, know, you will agree to Ukrainian neutrality or else. Uh, and NATO responded to that, and the United States responded to that by saying, oh, yeah, well, not only are we not going to rule out uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO, we're going to reaffirm our decision that Ukraine will one day be part of the alliance. And we're going to impose all these onerous economic sanctions on you to show you, you know, just how bad things will be if you act. Well, the Russians then said, okay, um, we'll see your, uh, your wager here. We'll raise it. We'll invade. Um, and what did the, the West do? We said, great, we'll, we'll hike up uh, economic sanctions yeah. even more. We'll flood Ukraine with weapons and advisors uh, and technology, um, and we're going to uh, reaffirm NATO's decision that Ukraine is going to be a part of uh, NATO again. Um, whereupon the Russians are now, you know, escalating. We're in a cycle of uh, tit for tat uh, action and reaction that each side believes will cause the other to back down. And you know, unless we engage in some sort of diplomatic negotiation to to find a way out of this, it's going to continue yeah. uh, until somebody you know you know faces the prospect of a direct military confrontation 
between the world's two largest nuclear powers, which obviously is extremely dangerous. Yeah, it really is. And, and one mistake can really tip this into a really bad direction quickly. And we have a lot of humans involved and that. That's the, the, hum, the humanity of this is always a scary part because of uh, the possibility that one misread can, can lead to something really, really devastating. I want to ask about the capability of our diplomatic corps on this particular issue. There's a lot of places where our State Department excels really well and does a lot of things. There seems to have been a disconnect between some of the objectives of the United States and then some of the ways we've carried out our policy in Eastern Europe. And there's been a very consistent hand for most of the last two decades in this area. Somebody I think you might have had a chance to work with uh, back in the days when you were advising Vice President Dick Cheney on Russia matters. But Victoria Newland's been a very important quarterback in Eastern Europe, certainly during the Obama years, again, now as Under Secretary of State. Um, does the State Department have the right approach on this matter right now? When you look back, uh, are we using the right tools and levers to try to get a good outcome for ourselves? Well, you know, I think the United States Diplomatic Corps fell into some bad habits after the Cold War ended. We were the world's hegemon. Right. Uh, an unrivaled pole in a unipolar world. And we didn't really have to compromise. We didn't have to engage in traditional balance of power politics, traditional give and take compromises. Um, we could simply tell other countries, do this or else, because uh, we had such overwhelming power that nobody could really say no. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what has happened over time is that much of the world has said, you know, we, we didn't really like that very much. <laughs> and um, they've started to react, to uh, amass the ability to resist uh, America's uh, directions. Uh, it's become a multipolar world. Russia and China are pushing back. Uh, we face a a peer competitor in China, um, and we can't approach things the way we did back in the 1990s and early 2000s. We have to recover our ability to engage in traditional balance of power politics, yeah. and, and we don't have a lot of experience, unfortunately, doing that right now. Yeah, you're right. It seems to be a blind spot in our in our portfolio, and. Uh, uh, there's a moment now where uh, if it ever were to be res resurrected, it seems like now would be a really good time. But there doesn't seem to be the leadership to to move that that um, capability to a, a different place. Um, are you surprised by uh, the performance of the Russian military? It seems like for all of its power, it, it hasn't fared that well against Ukraine. Uh, and two, are you uh, what, what's your assessment of Vladimir Putin's hold on power inside his own country? Well, I was initially surprised by uh, some of the mistakes the Russians made in the first phase of this war. They clearly did not believe they would face serious resistance from the Ukrainians. They thought they could simply drive into Kiev, raise the Russian flag, and the Zelensky government and Ukrainian people would flee. Um, they came armed with riot control gear. Um, which tells you that they thought their biggest challenge is going to be maintaining civic order, not defeating uh, an army. Uh, they obviously uh, were greatly mistaken in that. 
but they have regrouped. Um, they've concentrated their forces in the east. They've um, used uh, tactics that have been far more effective, and they are making slow but steady progress there. So um, although I was surprised at their initial approach, I think they, they have regrouped, and, and they're starting to have uh, more significant success. Yeah, I think uh, we hear that from a lot of the frontline uh, military folks, too, that the, yeah, now, the Russians have made progress. In terms of Putin and his hold on power, yeah. at this point, I don't think he is in any significant danger. Um, opinion polls in Russia, and yes, you do have to take those with something of a grain of salt, <laughs> sure. but they're not altogether inaccurate, inaccurate. They show that his popularity has actually gone up since this invasion. Wow. Um, and the Russian people seem to be coping with economic sanctions fairly well. Um, so it doesn't look to me like there's you know, any near-term political crisis on the horizon there. Yeah, very, very important to, to understand that dynamic. Um, I want to ask the last question because uh, we have a 2014 invasion of Ukraine, a 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Joe Biden is a consistent among those. President, former President uh, Donald Trump likes to say, if I were still in power, this would never have happened. Your assessment of the different approaches that the Trump administration and Obama-Biden, which are very similar uh, uh, to Russia, is there any truth to what, vice, uh, to what former President Trump said? Would this still have happened on Trump's watch? Well, that's obviously uh, uh, an historical question that's right. that you know, we can't know for sure, that's right. but I would say that there is a difference between the kinds of things that Trump, uh, the president, was saying about right. how we ought to be dealing with Russia and NATO and Europe on the one hand, and the positions of people within his administration on the other. Um, most of the people within his administration uh, thought about this issue very similarly to what uh, the Obama and Biden administrations have thought. Um, and Trump himself, I think, was an outlier within his government. So, you know, whether that would be true under a new Trump administration, hypothetically, you know, could Trump actually um, put together a team uh, on this that was like-minded with him, that could adopt a different approach that might have a chance of greater success with the Russians? You know, we won't know. Uh, we can't know that question. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, there was a lot of continuity uh, within the Trump uh, working levels on Ukraine. Um, and, you know, both the Biden and, uh, and Obama teams on this. And I think it's a failed approach. Yeah, it's really amazing that uh, there hasn't been more of an assessment of the failure of that. And uh, it's really, uh, I think history will look back and we'll have an opportunity to better understand where we want to stray. But I think that 1990s, early 2000 time frame that you so rightly uh, highlighted uh, probably would have been a time where we could have done a few things different and ended up in a better spot. George, how do people follow the good work you're doing at, at Quincy and other places? What's the best way to stay in, in touch with all of your good work? Uh, well, you know, the Quincy Institute has uh, a website, it has uh, Twitter handles, um, uh, and it publishes uh, an online journal called Responsible Statecraft. Yeah. So, uh, our work is available in all those places. 
A very important reading. If you haven't, folks, if you haven't bookmarked this, if you're worried about the world, this is a great website, responsiblestatecraft.org. It's one of the first things I check every morning. Very smart articles, and I see George in there all the time, along with a lot of other great writers. Uh, George, it's an honor to have you on today. Thanks for uh, giving us a great update on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Very much appreciate it. Thanks, John. My pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, more conversation right after this. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Lots of us are still coming to grips with yet another terrible mass shooting that occurred. Uh, This one, of course, on the 4th of July in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, this one raises questions uh, profoundly because this is a state that has all of the Democrats' wish lists for gun control. They have the red flag laws. They have bans on uh, high-powered rifles. They have all the different things that Democrats say will solve our problem with mass shootings. And yet, uh, the suspect in that case got the gun, committed the shooting, even though police had been at his home, even though there had been red flags with this guy for several years, and the very rifle he used to kill people, or allegedly used to kill people, uh, was banned in the very community where he lived, which means the laws didn't work, which is something a lot of people have been warning, that 
non-law-abiding citizens are still going to find a way to commit crime. We have a perfect guest to walk us through this, what we can learn from this so we can get smarter and better at stopping shootings. His name is Austin Davis. He's a reserve police officer and serves uh, as the Concealed Coalition's National Training Director. Austin, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, John. Now, you do. You have some really interesting work. You teach classes on how to de-escalate a situation that might be spiraling towards violence, to have situational awareness, uh, to uh, deal with normalcy bias. And all these things are things that civilians can use every day to be safer and also to protect their community. What are we missing in this debate? When we look at what happened on the 4th of July, where is this country not having the right debate? Well, first off, my heart goes out to the families that were affected by this. You know, there's nothing more tragic than two parents losing their lives, shielding their child. So the the magnitude of pain from this environment is amazing. And it's not the first time it's going to happen. And it's not the last time it's going to happen. So we have to start asking ourselves some questions. Number one, you had every law in place that the people who want to uh, limit the second amendment rights to about 81 million Americans, in place and it didn't help, it didn't work. You know, you had the firearms identification card that his father signed for, you had the police come out and, and see some edge weapons. The father then made a statement to get the edge weapons back, they were his. Everything was in place to make this happen, but still it did not stop an evil person with a gun with evil intent. Yeah, it is remarkable. I think that is the dynamic that has a lot of people scratching their heads. And so if you can't legislate your way out of this, There seems to be a lot of tactics that we don't talk about every day related to mental illness, relating uh, relating to identifying people in distress, people that are hurtling towards maybe a violent episode and the people around them don't know what to do. What are some of the solutions that are missing from the conversation that we should be considering? I mean, you do this in law enforcement, you do this in training. What are the, the things that we should be having a conversation about? Well, on a practical level, and I'm pretty much an outcome-based guy, we need to think about how our world is changing because we need to become our own first responders. When you are, and I hate to give this advice, but when you're in a public event now, you need to be your own first responder. You need to tell your family, if something happens, here's our exit, here's our secondary exit. If we get separated, here's where we're going to meet. Um, also, I hate to admit this, but I carry trauma gear with me everywhere I go. I carry it in a small ankle kit. I have tourniquets. I have chest seals. I have wound packing material. Wow. Um, And let me tell you, the reason I do that is because if there is some sort of critical incident, I can save myself, I can save the people with me, and I can save others if I have to. And this frees up emergency responders to help other people who weren't as prepared. So it is some confirmation bias being a police officer and a a civilian trainer for over 30 years. But I'm a high, big fan of carrying your own medical gear, having a plan with your family. This is not any different than saying, hey, everybody, buckle up. We're going to drive defensively. This is defensive living 101 in the current environment we face ourselves. Learn to be your own first responder. Yeah, what a smart, smart mindset. We got to get more and more people into that mindset. Now, uh, I want to step back because the the victims of a shooting like what happened the 4th of July in the Chicago suburbs are many. The officers that go through this, there's that incredible photo of that officer. You can see heartbroken as he walks through the crime scene with the bodies of the children around. Uh, when you when you step back and you look at this, uh, when a police officer goes in and uh, they're, they're in the circumstance of having to neutralize a suspect or protect the crowd from an ongoing active shooter, what are these, uh, what is the mindset that they have and what happens after a big event like this? Well, the 
three things an officer always has to do, and civilians as well, is first control yourself in the situation. Next thing, control the people in the situation, then try to control the situation. And the sad part in law enforcement is just because this event happened does not mean the shift is over. They still have to finish out the day. And the scars from this can last forever. You know, sometimes you make the call and you think there's not enough counseling in the United States to to undo what's about to, I'm about to go through. Yeah, such an important thing for all of us to remember because it doesn't the shift doesn't end and the next day you come right back and and you have to go back into that environment knowing that something bad could happen again and i think i grew up in a family of uh, of all cops i'm the fact the only non-cop among the men in my family uh and you, you see that every day they got to get up and do that job regardless of how hard the day was the day before and i think that understanding that dynamic is sometimes foreign to people who don't see it every day. You talk about something in your training that I think is really important, and that's called normalcy bias. A lot of people may not know what that is, but it is something that can blind civilians to uh, uh, to red flags and things that are going on. What is normalcy bias? Well, normalcy bias has a lot of different ways to explain it. One of my favorite is it'll never happen to me. That's the most common normalcy <laughs> bias. Right. I've never been a, a public event that got shot up. I've never had a home invasion, so it'll never happen to me. And if you don't believe it can happen to you, you won't be motivated to make those training equipment tactics and mindset necessary to deal with it when it does show up on your doorstep. You know, people say all the time, I live in a safe neighborhood. Like the criminals have some big Google map they're working off of. Oh, can't go there. That's that safe neighborhood. Yeah. Or a normalcy biases. I live in a rural area. Crime doesn't affect us. Crime affects you. There's just no witnesses. So normalcy bias is being in a movie theater and the movie theater starts getting shot up and you say, well, these are actors. These are fireworks or there must be some logical explanation. And that wastes time. And, you know, the sooner we see things, read the situation, recognize the situation, react, the more time we get, the more time we have in the situation, the more options we have to, to self-effect or rescue. And it's, it is changing your mindset to that sensitivity that we often try not to have. Right? We don't, we don't want anything bad to happen, so we're going to still see things as normal when they're not. How does normalcy bias affect the effectiveness of red flag loss? And also, I'd like to ask you this question. As someone in law enforcement, as someone who's a big uh, advocate of the Second Amendment, uh, do red flag gun laws really work? Well, first off, I think whether you, whatever side you're on in the, the gun control debate, we both, both sides agree 100%. Mentally ill people with violent intentions should not have access to firearms. Let's just put that as a, as a given. Yeah. What concerns me, though, is I think the red flag law is a serious Second Amendment um, rights threat. You know, there's some serious questions about the constitutionality, the practicality, but at the end of the day, Americans have a right to due process. And, you know, when you remove that right, even temporarily, it requires a lot of safeguards, those due process. So the red flag law, I have a neighbor who doesn't like me, and they say, we're going to go put a red flag on Austin Davis. And then all of a sudden they come in, they seize my firearms. Great. Now I've got to find a lawyer to get my firearms back. I have to find mental health workers, which will sign off on me. And I have to take time away from my life and productive aspects of my business and my family and bandwidth. And if you don't have some sort of prepaid legal defense for self-defense, which includes red flag laws, you now have to spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars and weeks, months, or years to get those firearms back. And even if they say you're innocent, you still get all that time, energy, money, and effort and concern back. Such a great point. It's a, it is a long process. Um, there was a major victory for the Second Amendment at the end of this Supreme Court session. Uh, New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Broom. Uh, a clear declaration by the court, 6-3 majority, 
that the right to bear arms means more than just owning an arm. It means the right to reasonably carry in most environments. Uh, how big a mo- change, a momentous change is this going to be in America? I've been in the, the, the gun rights fight for about 30 years, and it's, it's earth-shaking. It's like I've never seen in 30 years. And it really came at a very good time because Americans shouldn't have to prove that they're a stalking victim or a victim of family violence. to to somehow come in and get this May issue permit given to them. You know, 25 states have constitutional or permitless carry, and those don't seem to be the ones we see with the violence that we see in these other more prohibited states. And personally, I don't think the Bruin decision could have come at a better time because we're in a situation to where that normalcy bias, again, of I will go ahead and call the police and they will show up, may or may not happen. You know, just from my own agency that I patrol with, you know, my radio doesn't work. I have to turn it off and turn it on to broadcast. We have no more radios in supply chain. They are not available to me. Um, we have a lot of oh. patrol cars with tire problems because we need certain level of performance tire, and those are very difficult. Some small agencies I'm aware of right now are limiting the response to calls, and they're limiting the number of patrol miles driven because they've already eaten through their fuel budget. So. You know, the, the large metropolitan just north of me in my county, their, their response time is about 14 minutes. You need to get your head wrapped around the fact that you're on your own. Yeah. That, you know, you are your own first responder. And 15 minutes can be an eternity in a crisis like a mass shooting. Uh, that's why preparation and mindset are so important to this. Um, I want to ask a little bit because you just described an environment of what uh, police are facing on the supply chain front and elsewhere. But... Uh, there's also a morale problem. Everywhere I talk to the men and women in blue, there is grave concerns about uh, the morale, the, the approach that the Biden-Harris uh, and Democratic mayors are taking across this country to defund the police movement and its legacy. Um, what is the morale situation with the great men and women of, of blue? Well, I'm in, a, I'm in a unique position to answer that question, I think. I received my first commission in 1995, and I left police work a long time ago. COVID hit. I came back into law enforcement after a long gap, and what I came back into was shocking. Um, First off, so much of what we do now is catch and release. They're literally back on the streets before the paperwork is done. Um, The older officers are gone. The younger officers aren't coming in, and the ones left on the job are having some very, very tough times with what's going on because half the community really does not understand what we do and the other half thinks we can do more than we can do. We're in an almost no-win situation. And to go and put on a uniform these days and walk around publicly is shocking. It's much different than when I left before. It is is truly you feel like you have a target on your back from Mm. a lot of different varying groups. That is a scary thing to hear. The brain drain, too, that you just mentioned, the older officers gone. How, how significant is it that the culture of learning has been interrupted by such a big brain drain? Well, I'm a field training officer for my agency, and it's amazing because, you know, you, the only thing that age gives us is, that's a truly irreplaceable value is perspective. Right. And it's so hard these days when you don't have those older officers because every time you make a call, there's some routine calls that, that you've dealt with before, but so many of these situations are unique and you need that older officer who he or she has been there and says, Hey, I've seen this before. Here's how we did it in the past. And those people are gone. Matter of fact, many of the people that I still consult with in law enforcement are long retired, but they're on my cell phone call list. And many times on call, I've got to call them and say, Rodney, what do I do? You've never seen this before. I've got a situation and that brain drain is gone and it's not coming back. And the new generation, there's not enough, to even staff what we have currently, much less 
get enough time with officers being removed to go do training. Yeah, it is a crisis uh, that doesn't get reported in the media very often, but International Chiefs of Pol- Association of Chiefs Police really had uh, some amazing statistics. 78% of agencies report report having difficulty recruiting qualified police candidates. 65% of the agencies report having too few candidates. 75% of the agencies reported that recruiting is more difficult today than it was five years ago. 25% of agencies reported having to reduce or eliminate certain agency services because of a shortage of qualified officers. Uh, that is a crisis in the making and it's going to have downstream effects right now. Um, there was a pretty big announcement a couple of weeks ago that I think has more than just morale, uh, impacted more than just morale. Uh, the Chicago mayor saying the police no longer will be allowed to pursue uh, subjects uh, who aren't certain felony uh, suspects on foot even so that bad guys can simply run away and the cops can't do anything about it. Your take on that policy and what it does, not only to morale, but to the safety of the community. Well, Chicago's doing so well. I'm glad to see <laughs> that they're putting a policy in place that makes the officers and the citizens safer. You know, not being able to foot chase them tells me that it's going to restrict the officer's effectiveness. It's going to make the criminals criminals a lot more bold. I don't know if you saw the video the other night where they had blocked off the street at about 3 a.m. and doing some sort of street spinning around with the cars. And when the officer showed up, about 100 of these folks um, on the scene decided right. to charge the police car, start kicking in the window, launching fireworks at them. This is what happens when you lose control of the city. And we're we're looking at that very much so. So, you know, this is also going to add this no foot policy, another layer of training when you have very little training, available time, very little bandwidth, very little expense, very little spare officers take them off for training. We have to not only put that policy in, we have to train that officer because if we don't have training in context that will result in the same behavior in the street, these officers are going to be off policy because they didn't have recent realistic and relevant training on this policy. Yeah, what an amazing moment to think of how much we've disarmed the very people who could solve the crisis that Chicago is. I mean, the murders there, the shootings there. I think there were 65 or 70 shootings this weekend alone in Chicago. Uh, and yet uh, the war zone that it is, the people who can actually bring peace are, are being handcuffed more and more every day. It's a it's a head scratcher. Um, I want to go to one last uh, episode. It, happens in, it happened in California, but I think it's caught a lot of attentions. And uh, it's been focused predominantly because of the privacy impact of it, but I also think there's a security aspect of it. The leak by a state agency of uh, the personal identities of uh, concealed carry uh, permit holders in the state of California, your thoughts about what happened there, and not only the privacy violation that it clearly is, but does some of these people now have their lives in danger uh, or their security in danger because of the leak? Well, as the director of Concealed Coalition, we're in all 50 states. And of course, we have a lot of our community out of California. What's interesting is when the story broke, I was in California and I was around people who were on that list, some very pro-gun people. I was in a business function. And what's interesting was I heard everything from, oh my gosh, if this gets public, this this could ruin me professionally. This could crush my business. This could end my employment. I had family members there who were concerned that if this list got out, that their kids were not going to be allowed to play with other children because we're a pro-2A family. But what's really concerning to me is that list goes out, which creates a roadmap for the very offenders that many of these people 
applied for a license for, they are domestic violence victims, they are stalking victims, sexual assault victims, and then now there's a roadmap for this. So what is truly the, 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 the real problem with me in this California release is it happened one of two ways. Either there's an accident and some process and we need to find out, or it was intentional and we need to find out. And I think an independent investigation is appropriate in this situation. I know the AG said they would give credit monitoring, but this is a much, much deeper thing. And the real pain for me in this California situation is these are what the, 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 the non-2A people really want. They want people to go, look, I, I need to know what your gun is, register your gun. I want you to give me your personal information for a background check right. and then go through a very rigorous training process. They did all this and the state still failed them. Yeah, no, it's unreal what happened. And uh, you're right. Uh, that's the part that a lot of people don't realize. Some people who often, particularly in a restrictive state like California, people that get these concealed uh, permits are often people that have a security risk already, meaning they're a victim of domestic violence, particularly women. Uh, and now all of them, their their potential pursuers or potential the uh, bad opponents or people looking to victimize them have a roadmap, uh, an unbelievable leak with just unbelievable consequences. And uh, I don't know, uh, it will be interesting to get to the bottom of that and figure out what happened. Austin, real quickly, uh, describe the mission a little bit of Concealed Coalition and um, uh, the training that you do. I mean, you guys do the some of the most important training for people who want to be a responsible gun owner, a responsible carrier of guns. Well, at Concealed Coalition, our message is, is be a guardian always and a warrior when needed. And it's that guardian always really focus on. We think that, you know, shooting a gun is important, but shooting a gun is the smallest thing on a long list of things in defensive living that you need to focus on. So we spend a lot of more time on, for example, awareness training so that you can read the situation, react to it, uh, recognize it and react to it in time. We do a lot of de-escalation training. We believe a lot in intermediate use of force weapons because in about 80% of the situation, your gun's 100% of the wrong tool. If it's a simple assault, so having pepper spray, but having training, understanding how to function in low light, cover concealment angle training. And then for the last 10 years, I've been very heavily involved in using um, virtual reality judgment training simulators. So people actually get in real situations where their brain has a hard time understanding between a real and a high fidelity event and training them in real time to give them the procedures and a place in their brain that will react when it needs to react without thought. So we're, we're really big believers in training and context. Treating the brain is, is not only an information storage device, but where we put that information. So when you gasp, oh my gosh, can't believe this happened to me, you actually will be able to respond. That fight, flight, freeze part, we're hopefully taking the freeze out or at least minimizing that response. Yeah, such an important part of the uh, the process and uh, going through it. There's nothing like the training of going for it to be conditioned in case something bad ever happens. God forbid it doesn't, but if it does, uh, then you're, you're ready. And I think this is really a great public service. Uh, a lot of what you train is some of the things that they train pro uh, professional police officers in, right? I train at the academy level from time yeah. to time. And yes, in a lot of ways, I would counter that some of our training for our civilian users is better than what officers get. You know, in my state, you get about 60 hours as a basic recruit of firearms training, but you only get eight hours of de-escalation training. And that eight hours includes lunch. So, you know, we need to put our priorities in the softer skills. Yes, you may have to shoot a gun, but the odds of that are very small. But the odds of you having to de-escalate, the odds of you being aware, because more awareness gives you more time, more time gives you more options, uh, understanding interviews of force, all these things are skill sets, how to function in low light, that are very commonly used more than your gun and things that are usually not taught because shooting the gun is the easy part. It's the fun part. Unfortunately, it's the expensive part these days. 
Yeah, that really is amazing. Yeah, it is expensive. Isn't that the truth? Um, Austin, this is great stuff. Real quickly, how do people reach Concealed Coalition if they want to get involved with it? We're in all 50 states. Go to concealedcoalition.com. We also have Concealed Coalition University, which is um, course loads. It's very specific to the skill sets I talk about. But then once you get that, you can come into our virtual tactical academy and deal with the simulator and virtual reality tools a non-live firing firearm to let you learn in a safe environment where your brain can absorb things. Scared people don't learn, but we want to put you in as realistic an environment as possible with no live firearms, but virtual reality tools. It's, it's Nobody else in the industry has what we have, and we're very, very proud of it. The latest in technology, the best in uh, um, uh, procedures and practices. Uh, what a great opportunity and such a noble cause as well. Austin, thanks so much for your time. This is a really interesting issue. And um, I think uh, folks are, are getting better educated every day. And I think you've helped uh, move that along for them very much. I really appreciate the time today. Hey, John, thank you for letting me get my message out. Ah, very important stuff. Really enjoyed it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, folks, thanks for joining us. So grateful that you can spend some time with us. We enjoy having you here at justthenews.com, at John Solomon Reports. And of course, if you need a news fix, we got you covered 24-7 with breaking headlines, investigative scoops, enterprise reporting, big picture stories, big newsmaker interviews. Go check us out all the time at justthenews.com or even better yet, go download the Just the News app in the iOS, Apple, and Android, Google stores. A great way to read listen and watch just the news content yep we have video we have radio we've got text you should check us out every day on the just the news app easy to download from ios and the android store thanks for joining us we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of john solomon reports a podcast from just the news folks financial experts thought we were in the clear they were anticipating around six rate cuts by the fed this year and then the inflation data came out Higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with 
with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.